Welcome to Moving Upstream, a podcast by Prevention Institute. We're a national nonprofit with offices in Oakland, Los Angeles, Houston, and Washington, D.C. Each episode, we look closely at a health or equity issue in the news to understand how we got here and to find a healthier, more equitable way forward. Today, we're talking about COVID-19 and what we're seeing six months into the most serious pandemic any of us have experienced in our lifetime. I'm Rachel Davis, the Executive Director of Prevention Institute, and I'm joined by three women who are leaders in the world of healthcare and public health. Dr. Sherry Barkin is the Chief of General Pediatrics at the Monroe Carroll Jr. Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt in Nashville, Tennessee. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. I'm also joined by Dr. Jewel Mullen, the Associate Dean for Health Equity at the Dell Medical School at the University of Texas in Austin. Thanks for being here, Jewel. It's good to be back with you, Rachel. Finally, I'm joined by Chrissy Giuliano, Executive Director of the Big Cities Health Coalition, which is made up of the largest health departments in the country. Welcome, Chrissy. Thanks, Rachel. Happy to be here. Back in early March, Sherry, Jewel, and I had the opportunity to record a podcast together as the coronavirus pandemic was just developing in the United States. At that time, we knew very little. We guessed that COVID-19 would severely impact communities of color, but there wasn't any data to back that up. Today, we know so much more about COVID-19, how to prevent its spread, and which communities are bearing the greatest burden. But even with more information, the U.S. still has more confirmed cases and deaths than any other country in the world. Sherry, you work on the front lines of the pandemic at a hospital in Nashville. Tell us what you've been seeing in your community since we talked six months ago, and what's at the top of your mind right now? Since we talked six months ago, we've learned that in general, healthy children do fairly well with this virus. It's not that they're immune to it, and there are some children that are medically complex that are more at risk. But in general, children tend to do fairly well. And in fact, what that means as a pediatrician and in a children's hospital is that we've seen a return of patients coming back to clinic and back into the hospital. However, we're not seeing that everyone is accessing care equally. So we've been looking for community patterns and turn to data to geocode and understand the power of place to see what patients are able to come back and utilize services in clinics and hospital settings and who is not coming. And then we reached out to our patients and we asked them what their barriers were in coming. For those who were not accessing care more often, they were in COVID hotspots in in Nashville and Davidson County. And when we asked them what was preventing them from utilizing and accessing care, they mentioned that they had concerns about whether they were able to leave their home. There have been a lot of confusing messages. So it isn't clear, are they benefiting their family or harming their family? And that we can address through accurate communication and trusted messengers and trusted longstanding relationships that we, we have with our families. The second is that they didn't have any childcare, and that meant that all children were with them at all times. And 
Now you have schooling under one roof and you have multiple competing needs. So it was quite difficult to know if they should access care. We also have seen over the six months more obesity, more depression and anxiety. And these things are concerning, not only at this moment in time, but we know how it sets children up over a lifetime for whether they will emerge into health or into disease. So when you ask, Rachel, what's on the top of my mind, I think of a few key elements. One, from a pediatric perspective, this is about risk mitigation, not risk elimination. That means we can't only look at the health of our children through the lens of COVID. We have to also look through it in terms of whole total health. We wouldn't want to have an epidemic on top of a pandemic because we have vaccines that could be delivered to prevent other diseases like measles that children aren't accessing. The second is that it's all connected. That rapid worsening of the divide we see not only in health, but in education, economic stability, housing, food stability. This isn't many things, it is all connected. It is one thing. Uh, and then the third is this concern about this anemic social cohesion and social connection. We're a social species. If we are unable to connect in deep and meaningful ways, it has negative consequences on our physiology, our pathology, and not just at this moment in time, but setting up that lens through a lifetime for children. Thank you, Sherry. You're really seeing the widespread impact of this pandemic and all of the complexity that comes with that. Jewel, I know you do a lot of media interviews about the pandemic. What are some of the topics that reporters don't ask you that you really wish they would? You're right. Rachel, I have done a lot of media interviews and I appreciate having that opportunity because I always use the chance to talk with media as another chance to tell the public health story and to talk about COVID in a way that keeps the media as our partners in educating the public about what's really happening and about the importance of public health. And before I talk about what I wish they would ask more about, there are a couple of things that I do want to point out. One of which is that when people approach me to talk about something, invariably they've already done their homework. And more often than not, the reporters who reach out to me are sharing the same concerns that we have. They're aware of some of the issues that Shari just talked about and they're reaching out to me or us to give us a chance to speak for the, the people that we care for and that we care about, and increasingly to talk about what's happening to our colleagues doing this work on the front lines. The other thing that I wanted to point out is that I've appreciated how respectful a number of media partners have been when I have told them I will be happy to talk to them about public health, about what's happening in communities or in health systems, but that I am not looking for a political angle or spin. I prefer to leave that to someone else. Even some of our public health colleagues who are good at doing that or prefer to take that angle, it's not the one I wanna take because I want people to continue to reach out to me 
as someone that the public can listen to and know that my agenda is them and not a political agenda. So the things that I would love to see a little bit more is what I wish this podcast could show, that sometimes when I'm talking about health equity, it's not me, I'm the listener and one of my white colleagues has been asked to do it. Because sometimes it's extra easy to look for a black or brown person to talk about what's happening in black or brown communities. And, and when we do that, we sometimes miss the opportunity to show what we all know, which is that we are working out of mutual concern, not just out of an individual concern driven by who we are. And then the other thing I wish I could talk more about and they would ask more about is what's at the heart of the public health leader. Uh, you know, I don't even need to think about discussing what the latest news is and the challenge of one of our public health colleagues just wanting to go to work and do their work and give us the information we need from day to day. But to be able to characterize that public health leaders, even some of the ones who are political appointees, working with a public and not a political agenda, really have people and people's well-being and science at the center of what they do. Maybe the media doesn't need to ask me this because I'm not working in that public sphere again, but it sure would be nice to give more of our colleagues who are doing what some of us call the good fight to be able to say why they still do it, why they still show up, and why they will continue to. Thank you, Jewel. I think you just really captured the heart of public health and that it really being about well-being for everyone and achieving equity through that. Chrissy, you're in regular communication with the largest health departments in the country. We know they're under an incredible amount of pressure to reduce the spread of coronavirus. I'm wondering if you could give us a few examples of what's going right in terms of the local public health response to the pandemic. I mean, I think Jewel led us into this question, you know, in such a great way. It is amazing the work that is being done in communities across the country on the ground, both in local communities and at the state level, in an environment that is just incredibly unfair to public servants who, you know, really strive to make decisions based on science and data. The Big Cities Health Coalition has a monthly call and we've been doing bi-weekly calls since COVID started. And the joke is that at the end of the call, all the members feel better because they've shared what's going on and I feel terrible because I hear about what's going on, you know, in 20 different cities. But all that is to say, I think sort of the, the one thing that rises up for me is really this idea of strong local policy leadership, honest strategic communication, telling communities what they need to know at any given moment, even if it's hard to say. The former New York City Health Commissioner, Dr. Barbeau, at one point in the outbreak had to say to New Yorkers, don't come get tested. If you're sick, stay home. You probably have COVID. And that's really hard to tell people just, you know, sit there, you're probably okay. And if you're really ill, go to the hospital, but we can't test you all right now. And so that was an important message that she was able you know, to deliver 
as a trusted spokesperson. You know, the other thing has really been policies like stay-at-home orders. One of the first shelter-in-place orders is what they called it in the Bay Area, was a coalition of local communities who said, we can't act alone. You know, we have people who moved from San Francisco to Oakland to other parts of the Bay Area. We need you all to stay at home. And some of our colleagues at um, Drexel University School of Public Health Urban Health Collaborative found that stay-at-home orders in our member jurisdictions in just the first 45 days saved over 230,000 deaths and prevented 2.1 million hospitalizations. So these have real impacts on people's lives and their well-being. And similarly, you know, in some communities where there may not be a state-ordered mask mandate, local communities have, have picked up that slack, frankly, and said, in our community, we need to protect each other and make sure we're, we're wearing masks. So, you know, there's been a lot of both opportunity, I think, and challenges of how local this response has been, but um, local health officials are, are really working on how best they can work within what they've been presented with. Thanks, Chrissy. I think you just really underscored the importance of really strong public health leadership and also how that has been so informed by data. From the beginning of the pandemic, data, or more precisely, lack of data, has been a major concern. Early on, we didn't have racial and ethnic data at all. And now that we do have it, we see really enormous health inequities. Jewel, what are the data-related issues you're seeing that still need to be addressed? I'm so glad that we have the data that we do and hope that as we analyze it, we keep in mind how incomplete it continues to be. I really can say that working in Texas, where if we look at data tracking projects, we find that it might only be that 10% of the time are data by um, race and ethnicity being reported with regard to COVID cases. So that's an issue that we're all going to have to continue to contend with. Part of what I spend my time on then is speaking to how that lack of robust data ought not be considered the failure of public health. I have spent a lot of times reminding my clinical colleagues that public health isn't out collecting those data every day on who's getting tested, who's hospitalized, and who dies. So the, the data imperative in clinical sites and in health systems to actually uh, collect and analyze is a huge one. The other thing then I remind my colleagues about is not to do anything other than think, how can we support having the IT systems that we need to actually collect and analyze, collate, disseminate the data that we get? Because once again, this is an effort that is not just about one entity or one partner. So I want more data. I want more data disaggregated. And as we continue to do that, I think it'll be important for us to marry more 
qualitative and quantitative information because categories such as Hispanic are big categories with many different groups who live within them. Same thing with the notion of Black or African American or rural, for example. I'm not one of those people who sees the word rural and reads it as white, although some people do. So we have a long way to go in the way in which we think about data and to drive the way in which we then use it. And so the need that we really want to talk about is more accountability. Because if we're truly accountable for what's happening and wanting to fix it, we have to start with our data. I think that really helped give a picture of this notion of incomplete data at this point, six months into the pandemic. And Chrissy, you've been seeing some of these uh, data struggles that are really playing out at the local level. Can you give us a sense of what's happening behind the scenes and how cities may have improved over the last several months in this area? Yeah, so, you know, I think, again, piggybacking on what Jules said, it is a critically important point to understand that public health people want and need data. There is nobody sitting in a health department saying, I don't want to know racial and ethnic breakdowns. And really, we don't want to release those either because we don't think the public should know. It's really a failure of the system and the entire system that we don't have sufficient resources to be able to connect the dots between clinical care, public health, pharmacies, providers, so on and so forth. So public health is, is used to doing more with less, governmental public health, and this is a place that has really been under-resourced for decades. There were a bunch of articles about, um, one of them was in Texas, I think in Austin, but there were several about health departments faxing information around. And there was all this hubbub on Twitter. Oh my God, health departments are using fax machines. And not to be glib, but a, myself and a couple of colleagues were like, well, yeah, what, what is it, this is breaking news? You know, but we've been saying for years that we need resources to modernize the system, but those resources have not come. So the only way to share data sometimes is with a fax machine or on paper. We need to invest in a system that literally buys hardware and software in some places. There are health departments who, when they had to send their own staff to work from home for their safety, didn't have dollars to buy laptops. So they couldn't work from home. So now what do you do? Do you bring everybody in? And that's not about data per se, but it's really this big picture understanding of the amount of total resources that we have in governmental public health. So we need hardware, we need software upgrades. We also need sort of better uniform case definitions so that we all are talking about the same thing. To this day, we have some states, some localities in the federal government counting positivity rates differently. We have suspected cases, confirmed cases. This is unheard of. I mean, in public health, usually we come together as a field and we figure it out. But because of all of the other challenges of trusting science and data right now, we haven't been able to speak with one voice. So we really need to be able to appropriately resource state and local governmental public health, connect them to the clinical side and pharmacies and things like that, 
but then also again sort of speak with one science informed voice so that we know what we should be counting so that we can make data-based decisions and this is not an, a matter of asking who does it better because what what she just said and what we're talking about is how we all need to do a better job collectively and I've been concerned that some of the shifting and maneuvering that we've seen over the past several months is some notion that we'll just take it from one group and give it to another. That is erosion of a system, not creation of one. I, both yours and Christy's comments, they are both really, I think, underscore the impact of our historical underinvestment in public health infrastructure and public health systems and why we really need to do a much better job now to get out of the pandemic, but also to support better health outcomes and not be back in this place again um, in the future. I think the other thing, you know, that I took from your comment, Jewel, is public health is an important piece of the data, but health systems have a really important role too. And Sherry, you have been doing just some proactive data collection from a medical facility in neighborhoods. And I want to hear more about that and what you learned from that and how that's impacted practice for you. Well, I think that data by itself is not magic. It depends on what is collected, how it's collected, and who is contributing. So early in the pandemic, what most healthcare systems were quickly trying to do was stand up and scale telehealth made perfect sense. We can decrease our patients' risk and exposure to COVID, and we can still maximize access to care for those who need it. And what was great and what was really a game changer is now we had emergency provisions. So we could do something we never had done before. We could consistently connect to patients in their homes and on their mobile devices. This set up completely new dynamic. And in fact, if you look at data that was reported about how telehealth was being scaled, the numbers are unbelievable. Growth from 3% telehealth to 80% telehealth. Uh, in our institution, we went from something small like 300 telehealth visits in a week to 10,000 telehealth visits in a week. The scale is enormous. If I looked at that data, just as a number, I would think, incredible, what incredible work. And while that could be still the right conclusion, it's not the only conclusion. So what we started doing was understanding who is being represented in those data. In my division, we serve largely underserved families, about 18,000 unique families. Most of them are under-resourced families, remarkably diverse uh, in our clinic 54 languages are spoken and when we began looking at what it is to utilize telehealth and reach diverse populations people who are less comfortable with digital literacy people who have a phone but aren't really sure how to maximize the use of that to access care or um, people who spoke other languages besides english we saw that they were not included in any of these numbers. Now, this is, this is what data should do. I should be able to dive in and say, what's here, what isn't here? And then what does that mean if it's not there and how do you go forward? 
So what we did was we reached out to our patients and we really created just sort of the end of one experience. So with this patient and their needs and their digital literacy capabilities and their primary language capabilities, how could we co-create telehealth that could still work and still meet their needs? And we began to collect data on this as we went. As Jewel mentioned, not just quantitative data, but also qualitative data. So you have to really marry, what do the numbers mean? So both of those together, especially at this point in time, incredibly powerful when you can marry those two forms of data. So we learned that we really needed a different approach that was so much simpler. And in fact, we now are working with our partners at the library so we can expand upon their digital literacy inclusion and education that they had started many years ago. Now we're wrapping that in to how we connect it to the hospital and all of the people that we're serving in the community to build that skill of digital literacy. It's not just enough to have a mobile phone, which most of our families have. You have to know how to use it to get what you need. And then you have to see through data if it's working or not. So you can determine if you need to pivot to get to your mark. I love how you're using data to really inform a collective community response and approach to meet the needs of the families you're serving. We've been talking about what data we need to reduce the spread of COVID and to mitigate the wave we're expecting during flu season. And we need the right kind of data to get ourselves on a path to equitable recovery. Chrissy, what are the implications of this for our public health infrastructure? How long do we have? No, I'm kidding. Um, so, you know, just to be clear, governmental public health, when we talk about governmental public health, we're talking about um, government staff that work at local and state and federal um, health departments. And those people are charged with keeping their communities as healthy and safe as possible, right? As a field, we focus on prevention, data, the evidence base, and also policy, which we don't talk about as much. Um, but those things that really and truly affect our health, but that often happen outside our doctor's office, right? It's the community pieces that affect our health. So thinking about policies like paid sick leave, healthy housing, universal income, all of these things that support the health of our communities need to be considered not just in responding to COVID, but rebuilding our communities on the other side. And in some ways that sounds really dramatic, but we're at this place where we've seen 200,000 people across the country die with no end in sight, not to be too dark, but we really need to own that this is an experience that we're going to have to rebuild on the other side with. Now, on my more optimistic days, I think that we also have a real opportunity to think about how we do that in an equitable way that also makes us build communities that are going to um, make all of us healthier. The other piece of this, I think, is that we really need to respect and champion those public servants who are helping us get there. Jules talked about it a little bit, I did. We have a host of people across the country who are getting death threats you know, for doing their jobs to say, hey, you should stay at home to keep your community safe. So 
we need to better understand this balance and think about, I think, as a field, how we can have us all be healthier. And, and sometimes that means making hard choices for a community and hard individual choices. We have a number of our members, um, you know, city health officials who are saying the metrics that we're using are measuring actions that the government is doing, right? So testing and things like that. What about things that as community members, we all need to be doing? So how many people are wearing a mask? How many people are staying home? And there have been some sort of big data estimates of this stuff, but thinking about how we can also engage communities in you know, making the right choices and helping protect their neighbors is also part of what we do. And, and a key part, I think, of rebuilding these equitable communities. The last thing I would say at, at you know, this 10,000 foot level is COVID has raised some really interesting questions for me about local authority and autonomy and where the state and the federal role comes into play. And, you know, this has always been sort of a weird obsession of mine, but we're in this really weird place where I've always said that cities should have local control. And now the response has been so pushed down that what they actually need is federal leadership and resources and some command and control. So I think, you know, this is another piece of the puzzle that we'll all need to think about on the other side of this is what is that balance? And when does somebody step in and say, no, we are all going to do it the same way. And then we have to have some trust in leadership and science and data that those decisions are going to be the right ones. Jewel, what would you add uh, in terms of public health infrastructure if we're really gonna achieve health equity? Christy mentioned so much. So I wanna, I wanna um, build on what she mentioned about policy as actually part of an infrastructure or as really what's behind it. And, and think again about that connection or what's really in maybe many people's perception, the disconnect between what happens at the local level and federal policy. And then I'll say two words, nursing homes. So if we think about how many communities in a first big crisis around COVID was related to what was happening in long-term care facilities and how readily people started to talk about the quality of care and you know, local public health needed to respond, state public health needed to respond. But if we look at the resources that facilities have, and then we look at government oversight, we can almost see a policy environment that it was established to enable just what we have seen happen over the past several months with regard to reimbursement, with regard to standards of care, infection control, staffing, so many of the fundamentals to well-being for people who are dependent on a facility for their well-being. And we don't always see those connections when it comes down to just asking the questions, did the inspectors do a good enough job? Were the local ordinances what they needed to be? And that's financial issues, it's political issues, and it's also around societal values about who matters 
and, and how much resource goes to them. So what does this all have to do with public health infrastructure? I think um, in many ways, even though people might cry out for healthcare, I haven't been many places where people like, demand more public health from government. I'm just like not quite sure where that happens. I worry that's because there's still some notion that public health really just exists to take care of others, the people who don't have enough resources. So I decided to say those two words, nursing homes, instead of two words like black and brown, because it's almost easier to discount the, the challenges around equity when, we, when they, we let race filter in. But very fundamentally, thinking about support for all of the basic capabilities for well-being that public health supports is really key. And no matter what happens at the local level, we have to remember that there's a whole bunch of that could change at the federal level that could make the systems better and make the work more successful. For me, listening to you and Christy, what comes up for me is that the situation we're in right now is not surprising at all. It's a completely predictable outcome of the policies we've had in place, the system or lack of systems we've had in place. In other words, we've sort of produced what the system was designed to do. And so moving forward, we're gonna need to find the champions and be the champions for really creating that infrastructure to protect the public's health moving forward. Terry, you know, we have just been talking about public health infrastructure, but what do you see in terms of healthcare infrastructure needs that we haven't talked about as we look to create the infrastructure to support health and well-being moving forward? I do see that the ultimate goal of an excellent healthcare system is to improve the public's health. So how you set that up to achieve that aim is reflective of the time that we're in now. Healthcare systems are really built to be more rigid. There are many rules and regulations, some of which are absolutely critical and others might be less so. I think we need to build a healthcare system that allows us to be a lot more agile and flexible. It needs to be data informed so we understand when it's time to pivot, when what we were doing that might have worked before is no longer working, or when we see that some things work for some people but not for others, allowing us to then guide our way forward to get to that ultimate aspiration of improving the public's health. You do that one patient at a time, but you also do that through populations of patients and it ripples out into the community and is what we consider writ large as public health. I think it's also really important that healthcare infrastructure understands and responds to the power of place. So not all of our patients need exactly the same thing to help achieve their greatest health. And that means we have to understand the power of place and be able to respond to root causes that are leading to poor health outcomes and consequences. I also think that 
the healthcare system is one very important player, but not the own, only player. As Chrissy and Jewel have said so eloquently, we have to integrate these systems to lead us to improving the public's health. So for the healthcare system, that also means clarifying what do we own that we are entirely responsible for and leading the way, and where do we partner? Where could I be a good partner? A good example there is we see a lot of families who come through with food insecurity. Now, I might not be able to solve food insecurity when you come in for your child's visit, but I certainly can know the community resources. I certainly can know that that is a root cause of poor health outcomes, so I can screen and connect. That's a clear way that I can partner. Even if I am not the leader in solving that problem, we are all responsible for identifying our piece of how we solve it together. Thanks, Sherry. I think that really shows the really important linkages between healthcare and public health. Before we wrap up, I'd like to give each of you an opportunity to tell us about another observation you've made during the course of the pandemic or a pressing issue you think we should be thinking about right now that we haven't covered yet. Shari, what's coming up for you? Well, I love that I get to start. Thanks, Rachel. Well, I think we have the opportunity to bake in health equity as we build healthcare and public healthcare infrastructure better. This requires, from my perspective as a healthcare provider, a patient-centered or person-centered design that allows people to bring their solutions rather than an expert's solutions to the problem. So I think that means you also have to engage other stakeholders as you determine not only how to build it better, but how to sustain things that work. So in my world of healthcare, that means policymakers and payers to ensure that whatever we build that actually works can be sustained and it has to be led by accurate data systems to make sure we can always pivot if we are missing our mark. Chrissy, how about for you? There are so many things. <laughs> so, you know, I think one thing for me is really, and we've touched on this a little bit, so it's not necessarily new, but really this idea of the teachable moment. So I think using this as a lens through which we can expose disparities and differences in equity and privilege and all those things that we as a field talk about, we really now have, again, this concrete way to say it. I was on a call with our members the other day and one of them said, well, great, you know, we've all put out these statements that say racism is a public health crisis. Well, what are we gonna do about it? what's the next step? And so really building on what COVID has laid bare and the impacts of people in co of color and, you know, essential workers who can't call in sick, who also tend to be people of color. So really building on that to figure out what we can do at the policy level to have everybody have a set of things like, again, guaranteed minimum income, paid sick leave, family leave, access to healthcare, these things that so many of us take for granted that in a crisis like this have really 
big impacts on people's lives. Not that they don't in normal times, but really today, it's, it's more critical to think about that. And if we can do that, then we can prepare ourselves for how we're going to respond the next time we have an emergency. I've been thinking about pandemics since I started in public health because of the places I've worked. And, you know, it became a joke in my house. My husband was like, oh, is this going to be the next flu pandemic? And in sort of my worst nightmare, I did not think that we would be so behind the ball in this response. So in addition to the things that we need to do within communities and policies and things like that, we also really need to think about and learn how we got here and fix all the pieces that we can at a national level, not just in each of our communities. May I just add to what Chrissy said? I think something that's really critical is that you can't pull these things apart. They are the foundation of public health. So education and what's happening with education right now will dictate not only how people are doing with COVID right now, but what's going to happen five and 10 years from now. And so we are at this pivotal time when we have to shift from emergency thinking to creation and integrated thinking. Jewel, what's on your mind? Well, I'm listening to Chrissy and Shari smiling because I feel like they dropped the mic right into my hand. And here's why. So we all, we do public health, we love public health, we are public health. So I need to offer um, a sort of a, a reality check for us all, that public health and health equity are not synonymous. We might want to think that one automatically is a route to the other, but it's not so straightforward. So I need to humbly acknowledge that we have our own work to do while we call for everybody else to do theirs. Because I wouldn't be a good public health leader if I, if I weren't still paying attention to my colleagues who aren't so sure they feel good about the notion of health equity and who now are pushed into even more discomfort and having to figure out whether it's health equity or racial equity or both or neither and who are trying to figure out what word precedes lives matter. And that's a challenge for public health. It's a challenge for us as an enterprise and for us to really push all the, the partners in the system that we talked about to not have to do this over again in the next pandemic or as we continue through this one, there's some other alignment in ourselves and in our leadership that also needs to happen. And because we, in our hearts, want well-being for all, we, we don't deal with that the way we need to. To really, really even always feel like we can get to a place around policies that promote what we need. And, and I challenge us to go inside of ourselves and our organizations to start with what we truly believe people in a society deserve. And then 
pick the words that precede lives matter and pick the words to proceed saying black, brown, LGBTQ, all, but then to really say all lives matter equally. Because if we do that in public health, then maybe we really will say, let's look at all the work that we need to do for everyone. Thank you, Jewel, for keeping it real and reminding us how important uh, intentionality is in this work as we move forward. What's coming up for me right now is just tremendous gratitude and gratitude to the three of you for your leadership and more broadly gratitude to public health leaders around the country who have had to fight so hard at this time for all the reasons we've been talking about uh, today. And um, I can't imagine where we would be without them having led the way on demanding uh, what is needed to protect the public's health. So I just feel a lot of gratitude for the leadership that's been shown under really the most difficult circumstances. So thank you to you and thank you to them. And thank you for having this conversation with us today. I want to thank folks for listening, and I also want to thank the DeBeaumont Foundation for bringing Chrissy, Jewel, Sherry, and me together through the Women of Impact program. Take good care of yourselves in these difficult times. Thanks to our audience for joining us for this episode of Moving Upstream. To learn more about today's show, visit our website at preventioninstitute.org. We'd love to hear your ideas and feedback about this podcast. Find us on Twitter. We're at Prevention Inst. That's Prevention I-N-S-T.